Podglomerate Original. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, The Carbon Copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to The Carbon Copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. In the first season of this podcast, I told a story about how nature affected me. And in turn, a story of how nature affects all of us. This season, we're looking at how we affect nature. How our presence in and use are part of or an attack on nature. Part of this came about from what happened in season one. And part was spurred on by me learning of Walt Disney's attempt to build a ski resort in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the 1960s. And our growing and changing views on what it means to be responsible outdoors people. For Disney, and many others at the time, it meant creating a theme park in the mountains, halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. But for a growing number of people... Being a responsible outdoors person meant leaving the backcountry as it was. Forget about the disruption constructing a massive resort can cause. In their minds, the increased tourism alone could destroy the fragile ecosystem. Yet Team Disney believed that experiencing nature, getting high into the mountains, and making the outdoors arguably more accessible for those who don't backpack, rucksack, or snowshoe, was an essential part of their outdoor environmentalism. After all, what are we saving nature for if we can't use it? That question, this idea of using space and protecting it from overuse, is regularly playing on repeat in my head. And if you asked me what I believed five years ago, ten years ago, I'd have different answers than I do today. I'll probably have a different response tomorrow. But it's the looking for answers, the wrestling with seemingly conflicting ideas, and, at the risk of having too neat of a metaphor, the learning and changing like a giant sequoia tree that existed for centuries, scarred and burned, broken and twisted, 
and every day adapting to its new surroundings, slowly growing towards the sun that can continually shape us into the people that we want to be. I'm Andrew Stephen, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. Along with these questions we've been asking all season long, we've also looked at how wildfires affect these outdoor spaces. And while recent years have seen a sharp rise in the size and spread of these dangerous blazes, in the summer of 1988, a wildfire, the likes of which many of us had never dreamed, burned nearly one-third of Yellowstone National Park. If you're serious about understanding what a place like Yellowstone means and what forest fires mean to a place like Yellowstone, we have to change the way we think. A forest fire here in Yellowstone Park is different than a forest fire that you would have near your house. This is Yellowstone National Park Ranger George Hines. My name is George Hines and I'm a naturalist or an interpretive ranger here in Yellowstone. And I've been working here in the park on and off for about 30 years. I started working in the housekeeping department over there in the Old Faithful Inn when I was right out of high school, and I'd come out here for the summers. Eventually, uh, when I finished college, I decided I wanted to come back and be a park ranger. Now, as an interpretive ranger, part of his job is to guide and inform visitors through Yellowstone National Park on a variety of subjects, including wildfires. Yellowstone is 2.2 million acres or 3,472 square miles in size, that's about the size of Rhode Island and Delaware put together. This is a great big place. There are no private homes here. There's no private land here. It's all just wilderness, except for about 4 or 5% of the park, which is Old Faithful and Mammoth and Canyon. The rest of the park is wilderness. So fires in a wilderness area, especially a place like Yellowstone, are different than the fires you have in your backyard. Back in about 1972, that was Yellowstone's 100th anniversary. We started looking at the park a little different, and a lot of rules were changed. We wanted Yellowstone to be a more natural park. We wanted the bears to be bears instead of hanging out along the road where everybody fed them. But we also went to a natural regulation when it goes to forest fires. If you look back into the Forest Service history, you can get a general idea of how many people in the West viewed forest fires. The U.S. Forest Service policy had two goals, prevent and suppress a fire as quickly as possible. One way they went about this was by educating the public, 
1944, the Forest Service introduced Smokey Bear to teach people about fire prevention. A forest is many things. Shady places where you can camp. Good places for picnics, too. Yes, and a home for wildlife. All kinds of wildlife. Timberland for lumber harvest. And grazing land so there'll be meat for dinner. And milk in the morning. Watershed to make sure you'll get water when you turn the tap on at home. A forest is sure a lot of things. Yes, but let a little fire get started. Catch on, destroy, and your forest is nothing. Nothing for anybody. You have so many reasons to protect your forests. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. A side note, for the longest time, I thought it was Smokey the Bear, not Smokey Bear. Like, the was the bear's middle name or something. Maybe this is news to you, too. Anyway. Outside of prevention... The goal of suppression led to creating a network of fire roads, lookout towers, radio communication, and the Weeks Act of 1911, which allowed the government to offer financial incentives to states to fight wildfires. And by the 1930s, the U.S. Forest Service established a quote-unquote 10 a.m. policy, saying that every fire should be suppressed by 10 a.m. the day following its initial report. And even though these were Forest Service policies, they were quickly adopted either identically or in spirit by multiple agencies across the U.S. And this was the norm until the 1960s and 70s when scientific research increasingly demonstrated that fire had a positive role in forest ecology, eventually leading to a change in Forest Service policy to let fires burn when appropriate. So if it's a human-caused fire trees falling on a power line, a cigarette, a campfire. We fight those fires immediately no matter where they're at. If it's a natural fire that's started by lightning, then that fire's looked at. Where did it start? Where is it apt to burn? What direction is it going to go? Is it going to go towards a famous hotel like the Old Faithful Inn, or is it just going to burn out into the wilderness? Is it going to burn towards a gateway community that sits on the outside of the park? What's the weather been like? What's the weather expected to be like? So they take into account all those things, and then on each individual fire, they make a decision whether to go fight that fire or just let it burn itself out. Most of the time, when a fire starts naturally, by lightning here in Yellowstone, it burns less than an acre and puts itself out. Some years are different, and definitely 1988 was a different year. Part of our national heritage is under threat and on fire tonight. Our oldest national park is under siege tonight. The president to declare Yellowstone National Park a national disaster area. This is a collection of news clips surrounding the 1988 Yellowstone fires compiled by the New York Times. There are a lot of angry people who believe that the National Park Service let the fires burn too freely for too long. In the summer of 1988, then-superintendent of Yellowstone, Robert Barbie, saw nothing alarming when lightning ignited a series of fires in June. We were gratified at first. We thought, well, you know, uh, fire needs to be brought back into the system. And so little fires began to spring up. But that year, there were 50-something fires in the park. This is park ranger George Hines again. We have several different types of fires. You have crown fires that burn across the forest, and they're usually in multi-layered forests where you have middle-aged trees and older trees, 
And those middle-aged trees act as a ladder and they let that fire grow up into the top part of the forest. Those fires tend to burn everything. They burn the trees, they burn the forest floor and everything. We also have fires that are called ground fires that just creep along the forest floor. They burn up the litter layer and all the grasses and once you get rid of that litter layer, which is just the first few inches what we see on the forest floor, it burns up all those old needles, all the little wood particles and things like that, and then seeds and roots of other plants are exposed. So right after a forest fire, if a fire has crept along the forest floor, maybe even by the end of that summer, but definitely by the next spring, there's going to be little wildflowers and fireweed and other plants. As policy began to reflect the change in understanding that fire was a necessary part of the ecosystem, Yellowstone let their fires burn for the health of the forest. There was a confidence in the natural resource area that we knew what to expect and we knew what we we're doing when we got a fire. This is from that New York Times piece again. All the models that had existed prior to 1988 went out the window in 1988. The fire just went right through everything. Uh, those fires were moving at a speed that was unprecedented. And it's scary. The flames of July. 11 fires are now burning in this 2 million acre park. And they're being called the worst fires the park has ever seen. The fires continued to rage, bigger than expected, and eventually fire crews were called in to battle the growing inferno. Virtually every spark that blew ahead of the fire started another fire. So we couldn't put firefighters out in front of it. All you could do was bombard it from the air. People don't really understand the nature of wildfire. Even people that live nearby, they do after they've been through it a time or two. I mean, it's a tremendous force. And it's like, well, why don't you just put it out? Well, why don't you just stop the hurricane or the tornado? <laughs> you don't just put it out. Yellowstone Park Superintendent Bob Barbie denies fire crews waited too long. Uh, there's absolutely nothing humanly possible that could have been done. Residents and visitors ordered out, packed up their belongings, and evacuated as the fire approached. As fires continued to burn into September with seemingly no end in sight, growing numbers of voices raged in opposition. There are a lot of angry people who believe that the National Park Service is responsible that it let the fires burn too freely for too long. President Reagan moved to deal with a firestorm of protest over his administration's let it burn policy. Area ranchers have said the let it burn attitude makes no sense. Because of the previous decades of fire suppression, the national consensus became cemented Fires are destructive, and we must do everything we can to stop them immediately. And as we did this, the forest grew thick with overgrowth, adding literal fuel to the fire. Eventually, though, just like the blazes began, weather put an end to the flames. What an army of firefighters, hundreds of aircraft, and $120 million couldn't do a quarter inch of snow did on September 11th. This is what's left of Yellowstone tonight. They keep telling me it's history, but I would rather see it as it was. One of the big questions we get about forest fires is about all the dead wood. You know, why don't you clean up all this dead wood? You know, you got wood everywhere. George Hines again. The dead wood on the forest floor in Yellowstone is very important. 
I had a professor in college that called the dead wood in a forest that falls and decay, he called that biological legacy. All the minerals it takes to grow a healthy forest, they go up and the tree has those minerals in it, and then when a forest fire comes along, those minerals either fall to the forest floor right then or over time as the tree decays. And once they fall over, they start to decay, they build the next level of soil for the next forest that comes along. One of the neatest things about these lodgepole pine trees, and you've probably seen them all over the park, you've seen areas that are just babies, like this hillside over here, those trees were planted on September 7, 1988, as the fire came through. Because the neatest thing about lodgepole pines is they have two different types of pine cones. They have a pine cone that opens regularly, like other trees, but they also have a serotonous pine cone. And that pine cone, the tree covers it with a resin or a sap before it opens, and it sits there on the tree. When a forest fire goes through a lodgepole pine forest, it heats that resin or that sap, the pine cone opens and it reseeds the forest floor. One third of Yellowstone burned in 1988. We didn't plant a tree and some acres in Yellowstone today have a million trees per acre. Some of the areas that burned in 1988. We didn't plant any of them. Nature planted them. It's pretty amazing. If you walk up in there and sit down for a minute and then just look around and act like maybe you're an animal and you're looking for a place to hide or a place to eat, a place to stay away from the people, and then ask yourself, was Yellowstone really destroyed, or was it just a young forest as every bit as natural as an old forest? We humans, we just have that thing in our mind where we don't like any fire because we're afraid of our yards burning. But in a place like Yellowstone, where we let nature take its course, fires are every bit as natural as an old unburnt forest, a young forest is. The 1988 Yellowstone fires continue to shape how we talk about and fight wildfires in the West today. Many debates center on this issue. Do we suppress and prevent, or do we let it burn? As we continue to learn more and study the environment, our policies continue to change. As a result, what was once the status quo, or considered common knowledge, can become outdated, archaic, or just plain wrong. And as the metaphorical leech bleedings give way to metaphorical antibiotics, let's hope we continue on the path of necessary change. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable, butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on, and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem-free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash wait. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash W-E-I-G-H-T. The changing views on fire suppression and the burns in Yellowstone in 1988 keep coming to mind as I examine Walt Disney's story of building a ski park in Mineral King in the Sierra Nevadas. And I'm also reminded of a national park that's close to where I live. In Yosemite National Park, today, many guidebooks or displays will describe the area as pristine wilderness. For example, John Muir, in his famous quotes, now scattered underneath a million inspirational photos on Instagram, described Yosemite as a scenic wonder of nature and a, quote, temple lighted from above, but no temple made with hands can compare with Yosemite, unquote. It was pure wilderness with no mark of man visible upon it. But what Muir saw and wrote about bore the mark of generations of its inhabitants. Long before colonizers arrived, Yosemite's indigenous Awanichi people cared for the area by periodically burning the meadows in a practice known as cultural burning. These burns enriched the soil and encouraged growth, helping sustain the Awanichi people's cultures and economies. But this wasn't how John Muir described Yosemite Valley. And his writings would influence years and years of self-described nature lovers and environmentalists. They would even go on to influence Walt Disney. The Disney company had a history of making these wildlife films that were very famous. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and had received all sorts of awards, including, you know, Walt Disney won a huge award from the Sierra Club. This is environmental law professor Daniel Selmy. They were remarkable films that helped educate a lot of people on the natural world. The Disney company viewed themselves as conservationists. I think Walt Disney did, did as well. And so with their conservation and environmental philosophy in mind, Disney continued in their pursuit of building a ski resort in the Sierras. As I continued to learn more, it felt like this story was heading in a predictable direction. And I wondered, is Disney the hero or the villain in this story? This isn't one of his films with an obvious evil and a good we can all get behind. Though looking at it through today's eyes shifts the nuance significantly. But Disney is far from alone. We've quote-unquote managed the very nature we are a part of as if it were separate. We've invented terms like wild and wilderness to define existences that never were, and then blundered attempts to keep things that way. On the other hand, we've destroyed vital communities, homelands, and vistas in the name of so-called progress and prosperity, only to miss what we had and now attempting to rewild the areas. All the while, hopefully, learning or relearning what our role is in all of this. 
On September 19, 1966, a press conference was held at Mineral King. Alongside Walt Disney was California's governor, Edmund G. Brown, who strongly supported the ski resort project. Some noted that Disney looked pale or out of breath. It was probably just the altitude. One of the features Disney was excited to promote was that, for the first time for many, Mineral King would offer experiences over 10,000 feet of elevation. He couldn't wait to share that with the world. The contentious highway had been approved, and Governor Brown announced a $3 million federal grant for the road's construction. Next, an application for a $9 million federal loan and a request to the California's legislature for $13 million would let construction begin. Even as a changing environmental ethic and criticism grew, Disney still pressed on. Incensed, the Sierra Club lobbied the National Park Service to block the highway. Disney was destroying nature, not protecting it. But their efforts weren't enough. The Park Service approved the road. The Sierra Club for years sought to get a public hearing on the ski proposal in Mural King, and the Forest Service just saw no need for it. We've decided to do this. Why should we have a public hearing? So, yeah, they had to change markedly as the environmental issues came to the fore. Seemingly defeated, the Sierra Club had one more move to try. Could they sue the government to stop Disney's ski park? Yes, it was the only option left to them at that point. But the question really is, why did they suddenly recognize it as an option? Because there were very few environmental suits at the time. There had started to be some environmental lawsuits brought before this one. Particularly in the East, there was a famous one involving the Hudson River. There was another one involving a freeway in New York. It started to raise these kind of issues. So they were getting some visibility, and the Sierra Club certainly saw this. Mike McCloskey, who was the Sierra Club's executive director, was a lawyer, a trained lawyer. And he was aware of the possibility of litigation in a way that non-lawyers might well have not have been. One of the interesting things about it, though, is the Sierra Club brought the case in an effort to stop the Mineral King development. What it ended up with was a decision in the Supreme Court on a much broader issue. But before any of that could happen, a cataclysmic change would send reverberations around the globe, putting the future of Mineral King in question. On December 15th, 1966, almost three months to the date, after Disney's press conference announcing Mineral King, Walt Disney died. Good evening, friends. I'm sorry to have to welcome you to this invitational showing of Follow Me Boys in this way. I'd give anything to be there with you, but this seems to be one of those times I'm tied down here at the studio night and day. This is a clip of Walt Disney's last filmed appearance in 1966, An Evening with Walt Disney. I hope you enjoy the show, and incidentally, have a handkerchief handy. If you're like me, you're not only going to laugh a lot, but you're going to shed a few happy tears. So thanks for coming, and again, I'm sorry I can't be there with you personally. 
for this occasion. Professor Daniel P. Selmy's book, Dawn at Mineral King Valley, The Sierra Club, The Disney Company, and The Rise of Environmental Law, is available wherever books are sold. For more information, visit us online at trailweight.co. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a review, rating the podcast, and sharing an episode with someone who might find it interesting. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Conglomerate Original.